Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. The first reading is from the book of Sirach in the Old Testament. And here's what it says. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. They will save you. If you trust in God, you too shall live. He has set before you fire and water. To whichever you choose, stretch forth your hand. Before man are life and death, good and evil. Whichever he chooses shall be given to him. And so the Jewish and Christian understanding of free will, how does it stand up against modern science and those deniers of free will that somehow everything in you is simply decided by the material processes of your brain? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. The Sermon on the Mount, your brain, and your humanity, that is, your free will. Stay tuned. You may not have considered this, but you know, free will is essential to the whole understanding of salvation. If you don't have free will, if your idea that you actually can make an intellectually intelligent choice for good or evil, what meaning could it possibly have to follow Christ? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, especially the part that we'll cover today, it really is about choosing. Have you ever considered there's a difference between choosing and picking? Well, here's an illustration of it. In the 1980s, Benjamin Libet, he's a neuroscientist from one of the California schools, ran some famous experiments trying to determine the correlation between brain activity and physical activity. Basically, he hooked up electrodes to various subjects' heads. He instructed them to watch a clock when it got to a certain point to to hit the button, and then he measured the distance, the difference between the brain um, neurons firing, which the uh, apparatus he put on their head was supposed to pick up, and then the actual uh, intentionality of hitting the button. And so he, what he wanted to show that there was this chemical biomedical reaction that actually drove um, the physical reaction. Oddly enough, I don't think that has ever really been in controversy. Even Aristotle would say, or Aquinas or Augustine, there was a physical aspect to us as human beings. But that the idea that there's only the brain firing and the physical activity, this is what this neuroscientist was, uh, was focusing on. And what he determined was that there was about a 5.55 no, I'm sorry, a 0.555 millisecond difference between the brain neuron firing and the action of the hand. And so um, the brain clearly precedes the physical, physical activity is what he concluded through this experiment. Um, and that's what people did with that. Daniel Dennett, who is a well-known atheist, he's one of the new atheists and a denier of free will, argued that it was the, the, the physical action of the brain should have been simultaneous um, and that really there was just this uh, uh, delay because of a, of a physical, um, uh, some kind of physical impedance between the movement in the hand and, uh, the, elect and the electrical uh, activity of the brain. Others argued that, and I thought this was what was interesting, 
was that there's a difference between choosing and picking. And here's what they would say. Choosing requires uh, intellectual thought, preparation, uh, and intentionality. So for instance, a scientist can choose to conduct a brain experiment to try to determine the relationship of brain activity to the hand. He works with other scientists to come up with what the methodology is and how it'll be uh, tested, uh, what the hypothesis is, and then with their lab assistants and uh, and then these other people who are the test subjects, uh, everybody chooses to be part of it or to run this um, this this experiment. And the point of that is is um, if that is a lack of free will, if you can't come up with intentionality in running the experiment, you just underline undermined the whole basis for uh, science. How does science mean anything if it's simply a biomedical uh, action in the brain? It isn't that our brains don't affect our actions. If you've ever known anyone who had a bipolar disorder, you know that our brains can affect us. But the point is, does it simply reduce to that? There is something more that science has trouble touching. We would call it the soul, the spiritual life, but that's not a scientific um, explanation. What's picking? Well, picking is when your beloved spouse calls you on your phone and says, honey, pick up some uh, whole milk on the way home from the market. Which market, you would say? I don't care, you decide. So you have to decide, will it be Fry's, Safeway, Basha's, Albertson's? Could you pick it up at Circle K? So you come up with Fry's is on the way home, and then you'd have to decide where you're going to park, um, and you have to say, I'm going to park in close, but there's more traffic or park away. There's intentionality and decision-making. You go through and you plan how you're going to walk down the aisles to get to where the milk is. There's planning and decision-making. But when you get back to the milk, there are 40 identical gallons of whole milk. There is no intellectual basis for choosing. All you do is pick one. And so for Libet's experiment, uh, there wasn't any real choice to be made. You had one thing that you could do if you complied with the methodology. And that is, when you got to the little yellow spot, you reached out and you punched it. And the experiment kicked in and they measured your brain. And when your hand um, when your hand touched the little yellow dot or the button or whatever it was. Friends, how's free will on that experiment? What happens if you're a rebel patient and they tell you when it gets that yellow dot, you hit the button. It gets the yellow dot and you choose not to follow instructions. That's what free will is. You can either follow instructions or not follow instructions. You know, the gospel relies on free will. But human beings get a little, I think, confused about what free will is and what it's not. Um, free will refers to our human capacity to actively decide, to plan, <clears throat> to weigh and understand, instead of just reacting uh, instinctively. Uh, and so free will is about uh, the voluntas. Voluntas is Latin for will. And so when we say voluntary and action is voluntary, there's this act of choosing. It's not um, we're determined by an addiction or a habit. We weigh possibilities and we make a choice. Involuntary actions or instinctive actions, 
Well, a guy driving in front of you slams on the brakes, so you slam on the brakes. You're not thinking. You're just reacting. <coughs> and then the non-voluntary action, because these are all forms of human acts, voluntary, involuntary, and the third is non-voluntary. Well, think of that as coughing, which I just did, or breathing. All of these are human activities. But when we talk about free will, we just mean those things which you weigh and respond to. St. Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, part one, in his response to question 83 on free will, says that the answer if man has free will, which is the question, Aquinas says in part, I answer that man has free will. Otherwise, counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. In order to make this evident, we must observe that some things act without judgment as a stone moves downward, driven by gravity, and in like manner all things which lack knowledge. And some act from judgment, but not free judgment, as brute animals. For the sheep, seeing the wolf, judges it a thing to be shunned from a natural and not a free judgment, because it judges not from reason, but from natural instinct. And the same thing is to be said of any judgment of brute animals. But man acts from judgment, because by his apprehensive power, he judges that something should be avoided or something should be sought. But because this judgment in the case of some particular act is not from natural instinct, from some act of comparison in the reason, therefore he acts from free judgment and retains the power of being inclined to various things. Or as Sirach says, God spreads out before us good and evil. How we choose decides who we are. I don't think Catholics mostly have a problem with it. But thinking about uh, free will, especially when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, brings up the clash between our understanding of free will as Christians, as Catholics especially, and how freedom and free will is understood in the larger culture. And we're going to get into that uh, as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is one of the most consequential speeches or sermons ever, ever made in history. So just think about it. The very nature of science depends on free will. And so this for science is to suggest that free will doesn't exist at any level is to undermine the own, their own basis for science. It's really very problematic. But it's also about whether you as a human being are good or evil. So let's turn to the Sermon on the Mount and let's talk about free will and the choices that Christ puts in front of us. So if you remember, for the last two Sundays, we've been talking about the most consequential speech ever made, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And remember, it starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if you're persecuted, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's about God's presence, because the kingdom of heaven is God's presence in us. And then it talks, those blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the clean of heart. Because if you're going to be comforted or if you're going to see God or be called children of God, this is what it means to live in the kingdom of heaven. So last Sunday, Jesus said, and it's like this bridge section, why is this important? 
because you're the salt of the earth. You're supposed to preserve um, this world. Uh, it's never going to be the kingdom of heaven, but by our choices, we can keep it from being as corrupt and awful as it can be. We're supposed to be a light. And so the idea is, boy, it's so easy to justify horrible things, dropping uh, weapons on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, abortion, uh, all these different things uh, that people can justify in their minds. Um, but to shine a light in it is to show uh, the darkness in it, the evil in it. And what it says is, is that we're strung out between good and evil. When Harry Truman dropped that bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, you may feel, gosh, he had no choice. That was to save millions of lives and keep that war from going on. Well, okay, so there is this, this consequence that is partially good. There's also this consequence which incinerates how many innocent women with children in the womb, how many innocents were killed, non-combatants, children and old people, to achieve this end. And remember, the end, your purpose, doesn't justify the means, a fundamental moral principle. Because if you start uh, saying that the means, the ends justify the means, Holy moly, what can't you rationalize? Better to at least know you're in the darkness. And that was Elizabeth Anscombe's point. Just because uh, he did this horrible thing, we don't have to honor it. We just recognize sometimes bad things happen, but we don't have to call them good. And then to be a city on the hill, uh, a safe place for people where there is support in living this life. And then we turn to the end of chapter 5, and that is the gospel for today. And so here's the Sermon on the Mount, and I would tell you, this, are the, this is the footnotes to what I've just told you. If you think about the Sermon on the Mount as the main theme, the point of the purpose of it all, and now we're into the footnotes, we're learning what uh, all these uh, blessings are uh, that Jesus talked about two Sundays ago. So here's the first one. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law until all things have taken place. And then he goes on to say, your righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And so why don't we follow kosher? Why aren't we circumcised? Well, it's because when Jesus is crucified in the Gospel of Matthew, that is all these prophecies he's talking about taking place. It's the fulfillment of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the fulfillment of his predictions of the Passion. And so the law changes, at least the cultic law changes, and circumcision is a cultic law. Kosher is a cultic law. But the moral law is fulfilled. And so... The purpose of the cultic law is uh, completed in Jesus' crucifixion. Now life in Christ begins because we pay attention uh, to the moral law. And so then Jesus goes, and this is about what he means by your righteousness uh, surpassing that of the Pharisees. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to uh, Gehenna. 
So remember, the Jewish law was centered on exterior behavior. Uh, and mostly that's how casuistic law works. And it really is just typical of ancient law. Jesus redirects the focus to the interior. And so it's how when we do like um, a, a consciousness examine, when you're making, getting ready to make a confession, you don't think about it. But what you do is you examine your conscience according to thought, word, and deed. Uh, this whole part of what it means to have a moral act, uh, the kinds of thoughts that you entertain too long, right? Then you come up with your evil plots. But then you catch yourself and you go to see the priest and you confess it all because you want to be clean of heart. Or how about this? It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a bill of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife unless the marriage is unlawful, and that's by Jewish law, causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So even when the common life fails, your commitment to the community of life and love, the marriage continues. That's why we have the practice of uh, divorce, but not remarriage, which has been problematic, as you know, um, in uh, some quarters in the Catholic Church because we link reception of communion to divorce and remarriage. And the Pope talked about that in Amoris Laetitia, and I will talk about that hopefully in another podcast. Um, but it's uh, very much a hot issue today. But that the idea of intentionality in thought, word, and deed, being faithful to your promises. And then uh, Jesus goes on. Again, you have heard that it was said your ancestors do not take a false oath, but make good to the Lord all that you vow. But I say to you, do not swear at all, not by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, but you cannot make a single hair white or black. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. In your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds, deal with reality. When you undermine reality by your actions, it really doesn't matter that you try to cover yourself by swearing in God's name. Perjury is still perjury. Thought, word, and deed. So what is freedom in this view of things? Um, here's what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to choose freely to follow Jesus and to live the moral life. It is not freedom to choose to be addicted to sin. It is not freedom to do evil. You may think that freedom is, I can just choose, right, choices. But once you choose between good and evil, you can't claim you're free when you're choosing slavery to evil instead of freedom in the life of God. Um, real freedom is cooperating with God's uh, creative intent. So when you go to confession and Lent's coming up, Remember the seven deadly sins because they're all about thought, word, and deed, uh, anger and lust and gluttony and avarice and jealousy and envy and pride. How much of those are interior dispositions that can be acted out through exterior actions? And so let's close all of this as we kind of draw this together, thinking about free will as intentionality and choosing. And I would suggest to you, 
learning how to be in control of your mind. Because, and I'll say it again, the brain is a terrible master, but the brain is also a great servant. And by how you choose to let your brain run away with itself or choose to dominate it and direct it is integral to your choice to be free. Let's go and uh, conclude all of this uh, in the final section of Oral Valley Catholic. So think about this understanding of free will about um, choices and that choices are intentional and they're voluntary, hopefully they're voluntary, because it goes to the whole sense of what it means to be a responsible human agent. And remember the important things about thinking about human intentionality, uh, the act of our will. Remember, there's voluntary, which is intentional and knowing. Um, it's at the heart of every marriage decision, uh, to this intentional voluntary decisions, why shotgun weddings are not valid marriages in the Catholic Church, because they're involuntary. There is an external compulsion on you which undermines the voluntary nature of marriage. Uh, that can, uh, you don't get a lot of shotgun weddings um, at the tribunal, but you do get people who get married because they got each other pregnant. Uh, they got pregnant together, I guess, and uh, felt like they had to, quote, do the right thing. But uh, marriage was not really the right thing. But the sense that your free will is overwhelmed at some point fear of your parents, um, or involuntary action could be passions and impulses that you spent so many years giving into, it's that they just run away with you. And the brain can run away with you. It does have a role in our decisions. And remember then there's the non-voluntary, what I've heard referred to as a reptilian part of our brain because um, that part of our brain does the same thing as it does with reptiles. It breathes, it swallows. I don't know if dinosaurs sneezed, uh, but maybe they did. But that would be an involuntary action. And so uh, in choosing freedom, it's becoming the kind of person that frees themselves from passions, protects themselves from addictions or um, overuse of alcohol that puts them in danger of, of diminished capacity for a voluntary decision. Um, and we have to practice that. And it's the process of becoming free, to give in to your passions, to give in to your impulses, to give in to your fears. This is not the experience of freedom. You may understand why you do it or other people do it, um, but you, have, you can't call it a good. It is simply the experience of non-freedom uh, because it's not fully voluntary, it's involuntary. So for Harry S. Truman dropping those two bombs, how free was that decision? I think that's probably the most um, uh, meaningful part of the discussion because that after five or six years of world war, imagine the pressure on that poor man. Or think about women and men facing the choice of abortion. Um, you know, it's obviously not good. Even a woman who has an ectopic pregnancy and has an abortion, which is morally acceptable, it doesn't convert it into a good. What mom wants to lose her baby. And so the real good of sex is 
husband and wife love each other and they have children together. All these other things participate in the good at some level, but they're certainly not the fullness of the good. And what role does the brain play in that? Well, you know, again, going back to the great Elizabeth Anscombe, she became famous as an undergraduate at Oxford or Cambridge when she took on the famous C.S. Lewis um, in the late 40s and criticized his book, Miracles. And he's a best-selling article. But she focused on chapter three of Miracles, where Lewis had argued, and I'd heard the argument made elsewhere, that it's self-defeating for someone to believe, like a naturalist or materialist, that the brain uh, makes decisions, that it's a biochemical reaction, because there's no freedom in it. It's the same basic argument that I made when I said it makes no sense to undermine free will and then think that you can actually do meaningful science because you've undermined your ability for intentional and voluntary and knowing choices that are really at the heart of the, the scientific method. And so Lewis was basically making the same argument. And here's how Elizabeth Anscombe would respond to C.S. Lewis and your own beloved father, John Arnold. What she would say is, the problem is this. Clearly, the brain is part of our decision-making. When the brain is injured, it affects our ability to think, to choose, and to form intentions. When our brain suffers from mental illness, it uh, reduces our capacity for the same thing. Alcohol, drugs, reduce our capacity. Clearly, brain activity, elect neurons firing, are part of intentional choice-making. And so, no, naturalism and materialism is not self-refuting because they point out what obviously is scientifically true. The problem is when they reduce everything to just brain activity along the standards that we currently think of materiality. It's not that it's wrong, it's just incomplete. Now that's a measured response. And I think I was fair to what Elizabeth Anscombe had said about it. She followed Aristotle and Aquinas, who thought that the, the soul was really part of the entire form of the human person, not like some separate reality uh, that just used our, our bodies like uh, puppets, but instead just simply part of the whole form. And when the form is injured, the functionality of the form is injured. It's why in um, say, uh, debating about Aquinas is the idea is when you die and your soul exists without your body, which is currently how I think Catholic dogma understands it, are you really fully human? And in what sense? Um, I know that's been a, a matter of debate. And so that these points about the body, free will, uh, brain activity, making choices, intentionality, they're really fascinating issues. But at the heart of it is to understand what freedom is. Free will means you choose to be free. You choose to honor your relationships and be faithful. You choose to tell the truth and deal with reality as best you can understand it. You choose to accept responsibility even when 
you make some bad decisions. And friends, everybody makes bad decisions, right? And there's no point in all the rationalizations that we go through trying to make those decisions right. And then put it together with what the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount was, was about the letter of the law always being followed until the end of time, until all things are completed. And, you know, cultic law ended with Jesus. Uh, his death is sacrificed because the cult is taken up into the sacrifice of Christ. But the moral law, how we participate in the rationality of God, this is the life of virtue, of uh, faith, hope, and love, of justice and courage, prudence and temperance. These are the qualities that make us free. In America, the idea of freedom is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you're free from all restrictions. Um, that's not freedom in any meaningful sense. And I know that you look out there into the world and are discouraged by how all this plays out. But think about how you witness to freedom and who we're called to be. Mostly evangelization is reminding people of who they are and how they're supposed to live. And in that, they can see the presence of God and something more than just impulses. I'll repeat what I said earlier. The brain is a terrible master. The brain is a great servant. You get to decide whether you're going to be mastered by your brain or you're going to be your brain's master. And then you can direct all your actions to love of God and service of neighbor. God bless you, and I'll see you next week on Oil Valley Catholic.